Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 44, 30 more rapid fire tips for video production. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for listening in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. For those of you who are new to the Filming with Josh podcast, this is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. If you are interested in learning more about video production, whether it's uh, live streaming, content creation, storyboarding, camera settings, gear, uh, editing, or even the business side of things, this is your home. Um, We are more than just a podcast. We have blogs. We have video vlogs. We even have a very rapidly growing Facebook group called the Filming with Josh group. If you just go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh and ask to join the group, I'll be sure to approve you. So this is your home to learn all about video. We talk about every topic that gets thrown our way. So if you have something you want to be uh, informed on, feel free to Uh, Go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and ask a question there or even request a podcast topic, and I'll try to cover it whenever I can. So thanks, guys, for listening in. Today's episode is 30 more rapid-fire tips for video production. Uh, This is playing off of episode 23, which came out last year, which was 30 rapid-fire tips for video production. So this is essentially the sequel of that, where I'm coming out with 30 more additional tips or suggestions um, for video production. These are in no particular order and are just 30 more tips that I want to give for those of you who are interested in growing your video production business or um, hobby. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Number one is use two wireless receivers when filming uncontrollable audio levels. Um, A lot of people that listen to this podcast uh, follow me from the hunting and fishing world because that's kind of where I cut my teeth and I I knew a lot of people from there and have uh, met a lot of people in those industries. And this is kind of where I came up with this this tip, really. Uh, When I was doing uh, hunting and fishing shows, one thing that I noticed um, was when I had, uh, let's just say it was a a hunting situation, I was filming a deer hunt. When I had a, a hunter mic'd up with a wireless mic, I, I kind of noticed that you, you have this constant battle of figuring out what your audio decibel level should be at. The reason being is during the majority of the hunt, your hunter is going to be talking really quietly. He's going to be whispering. He's going to be talking kind of like this, right? Just being really quiet. But then all of a sudden the big deer comes in, he shoots the deer and then he gets really excited and he yells and he screams and he's high-fiving and fist bumping and all that because he's so stoked. And that's so hard to manage the audio levels for because when you're in that situation, you don't have a sound guy. You are doing your own sound and you you want to have your decibel levels set to a place where you can hear his whispering and his quiet talking really loudly. But at the same time, you don't want the audio to blow when he gets really excited. And so it was this constant struggle. And usually what ends up happening is you have to pick one or the other. Would I rather have the audio when he gets really loud um, and, and have that not clip and sacrifice the uh, the quality of the whispering? Or would I rather... Um, have my audio levels set kind of high so I can hear the whispering really well and have a lot of uh, a lot of um, 
amplified gain there. And then when he yells, just be willing to accept the fact it's going to blow. You kind of had to pick one or the other. Um, And most people would end up picking to go with the first option. They would set the levels kind of lower. So if the person got excited, they wouldn't blow the audio. But what would end up happening is in post, the editor is bringing the audio levels up so you can hear the whispering better and it would just sound really grainy. Um, And that kind of just is an acceptable thing. You either have grainy audio and uh, hunting video or you have uh, blown audio when they get excited. It's usually one or the other. Same thing a lot of times happens for fishing shows. Fishing, not quite as much because they don't whisper as much, but sometimes they might talk a little quieter and then freak out when they hook into a big bass. And so you could run into that uh, there as well. And so a trick that I uh, use to overcome that um, was I would use two wireless receivers. Now, if you have a camera that can only have two channels of audio, this is a little tougher of an option because you're gonna want to typically have a shotgun mic and a wireless mic. The shotgun mic is typically there for ambient audio and then, or or nat sounds, and then the, the wireless lav mic is typically there for your subject, right? If you have a camera that can take three or more channels of audio, like an FX6, an FS7, an FX9, those cameras can have up to four channels of audio. So for those cameras, this is a great option. But for cameras that can only have up to two channels, say a Sony A7 S3 with a a K2M, the K3M can do up to three channels now, so this helps in that situation. But if you have a camera that can only accept up to two channels, then you have you kind of have to weigh your options here um, because what my what my suggestion is and how I work around this is I use uh, two wireless receivers uh, on my camera and I have I have them both set to the same um, frequency as the uh, transmitter. So if my my subject has a transmitter. Um, plugged up, I'll have both of my receivers set to the same channel. So they're both receiving the same lav mic audio. Um, It's just that in the camera, I'll set one to a higher decibel level for the quiet talking or the whispering. And then the other receiver I have set to a much lower decibel level so that when he yells and freaks out, it doesn't blow. This gives you the best of both worlds, right? When you are in uh, post or if you're handing this off to an editor and they're going through this for post, um, they can use channel one for all the whispering stuff, all the really quiet talking stuff. But then whenever they are successful and they get really excited and start yelling and fist bumping and high five, they'll cut to channel two where the audio level was set much lower. And that way you never have blown audio and you don't ever have audio that's really hissy or grainy simply because um, you're, you always had the, um, the first channel set to a much higher decibel level. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. And in post-production, they just cut back and forth between the two depending on how loud your hunter gets. So that's a really great way to approach it. And for me, because I, run, I ran an FS7 and then an FS7 Mark II, and now I run an FX6, I have up to four channels of audio, so it works great. I'll have a shotgun mic in one channel, and then I'll have two receivers uh, and two other channels, and that will allow me to still have my ambient audio while also having uh, uh, two lav mic channels, one at a higher level, one at a lower level. Now, if you are working with a camera that only has two channels of audio, then you have to kind of pick. You you could run two wireless receivers or a dual. I, I a lot of times will just use a dual wireless receiver. You could do that um, and not have a shotgun mic and just have uh, a lower and a higher audio level um, and no gun mic. 
Or if you want to have the gun mic, then you have to go with the more standard approach of, of picking an audio decibel level and you can't really um, use my suggestion. Uh, so I really think in a perfect world, this tip works best for those of you that can record three or more channels of audio simply because you're not losing your gun mic. But if you are willing to give up your gun mic and your camera can only record two channels of audio, this is a really great tip, a really great way to work with uncontrollable audio levels. And this goes beyond, I originally came up with this tip when I was in the doing a lot more stuff in the hunting and fishing world, but it applies to other things too. If you were working without a sound engineer and you're maybe filming an interview of someone that whose audio levels are all over the place, uh, or maybe you're, you're shooting an event and and someone's getting really loud and then really low and then really loud and really low. You could do this for that too. So it goes it goes beyond just um, the hunting and fishing world. It's just that that's kind of where I developed this strategy, um, and I think it works really well there. Um, and I do use it in other places too. Now there are new devices out there. Like I have a Sound Devices Mix Pre 6.2 recorder that it's a field mixer that records a 32-bit float audio. So I can just record one channel and my dynamic range is so big that this is no longer a problem. But I'm not going to carry a field mixer with me to the field when I'm also filming uh, a hunt myself because I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 running, I'm running my own audio and my camera and everything else. So I've got way too much to worry about. So for me, even today, if I was to get hired, even though I have that field mixer with the huge dynamic range of 32-bit float audio, if I got hired today to do uh, like a hunting film or something, I would still use two wireless receivers, um, one set to a higher level than the other, and then have a gun mic. This, is, this would still be my strategy. And I think it's a really good tip for those of you who are trying to work around uncontrollable audio levels in a situation like this. Number two, try to avoid on-camera lights. Whoa, man, I have a, I have a hate for on-camera lights. I think they look cheap. They look like reality television. They're just, it's just cheap. There's no other way to put it. It looks cheap. I hate it. Um, I keep an on-camera light in my kit uh, only for emergencies. And I have in my entire, what I've been in this 11, 12 years, 11 years, something like that. I've maybe used an on-camera light twice ever. I just don't use them. I think they look, they look cheap honestly. And I don't think you have to. And, and again, I, I cut my teeth in the hunting world and, and, and I, I knew a lot of guys used them for recovering uh, animals. And I, I never understood that because there's so many other creative ways you can light that. You can use just a headlamp and keep the shot dark and have the headlamp be lighting the way. And when they come up to the animal, have them light the animal with a headlamp. And, if, and let's just say it's a deer, they get behind the deer and they're looking at its antlers. The deer's antlers are now being backlit by a headlamp and it looks spectacular. I've shot a lot of projects like that and it looks amazing. And I love that. That's creative lighting. Or if you have two people that are working together to track and recover an animal, um, you can use both of their headlamps or their flashlights. And, and you don't have to have an on-camera light. You can be creative. Um, you could have someone, if you're, if you're trying to film someone and they're talking about what they're going to do for the day and it's really early in the morning, maybe they're um, heading out or maybe they're sitting in the blind, you can have them pull up their cell phone and they could be like looking at their phone and using that phone light to light up their face. Or you could even take a small light, and I've done this, and put it on top of the cell phone and have them hold the phone and that small light will light up their face. And it looks like phone light, but it's actually there's actually a light on top of the phone. People just don't see it. And it lights up their face really well and it looks like the lighting is natural. It's just coming off their screen. I mean, there's so many more creative ways that you can light something 
other than throwing a light on top of your camera and following someone around like you're filming, I don't know, a New Jersey TV show, Jersey Shores or something. I don't even know the name of it because I don't watch it. But I mean, it just looks like that, right? Like reality TV-ish when you throw a, a, a camera on a light. You would never see that in a movie set and, and there's no reason to see that and in, 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 in the outdoor world, I mean, you can totally avoid that if you just are creative with your lighting. And this goes with anything. Like, it doesn't matter if you're doing a dock project, filming a, uh, you know, a big mountain climbing expedition. Use headlamps, use flashlights, use cell phones, use other things to light your scene and do it creatively. Don't, don't throw a camera light on top of your camera. It just looks cheap. I, again, I keep one on me as a, in an emergency situation because I have had two different clients in my career um, just desperately want one because they were convinced that was the only way to do it. Uh, and so at least I had one for those situations. But never in any work that um, I'm doing uh, and I have that I have full control of will I ever put a camera light on top of my camera. Just I just don't like the look of it. Number three, don't use wide lenses close to people's faces for interviews. I'm doing a lot of stuff to the outdoor-ish world here at the beginning, as you might notice, because another reason I have this suggestion is a lot of times I see people will, again, back to the outdoor world, will film something like a hunt and they'll be in a tree um, and they'll have their camera mounted to a tree arm and they'll want a lens that goes all the way out to like 18 millimeters or something like that. And they will film an interview at like 18 millimeters. And it, you know what it does? It distorts the person's face and makes them look kind of fat and elongated. I mean, genuinely, that's what it does. Wide lenses, just are not flattering to people's faces, especially if you're up close to that person. And if you're like filming Hunt, for instance, you're gonna be up close to that person. And so I think you're really better off shooting at like 35 millimeters and tighter. And you could do 24, but even 24 is distorted. 35 is kind of um, the widest I'll go in a situation like that. Um, anything wider than that, it just doesn't look good. So if you're looking for a lens for a situation like that, don't get all caught up in the widest you can get because it's not flattering. Stick in, stick it to a millimeter range of like 35 and up. It'll look a lot more flattering um, and, and just will be a lot better. Even if your lens goes all the way out to like 18 or 24, just zoom in a little bit and it'll just make your person's face not look as elongated. And this again goes beyond the outdoor world. I mean, if you're filming if you're filming uh, an event and you're getting interviews of people that are attending the event and you're shooting off the shoulder, run and gun style, um, have have a little bit tighter look. 35 millimeters down. Don't don't do it super wide up close to that person because it just it just doesn't look good. Number four, try to mix static shots into your projects. This goes for everybody. Um, we're so caught up in today's video world with gimbals and drones and sliders and stuff that we worry so much about motion that we forget about static shots. Uh, and I'm a huge, huge believer in static shots. Uh, I have lots of static shots in my work because static shots, um, a lot of times you just need to slow the project down and let the movement happen in the shot, not the shot be the movement, right? Um, and you see this a lot, like watch any TV show or any movie, how many static shots do you see? You'll see them all the time. So don't get caught up in trying to move the camera constantly, um, especially if you're doing any kind of a, any kind of a commercial project or storytelling project, um, because you know it's not a music video. <laughs> and even in music videos, there are static shots. The camera doesn't have to always move. Um, learn to use static shots and cut them into your work and let, let what's going on in the frame um, 
do the movement for you or, or tell the shot for you. Don't rely on moving the camera. Um, that to me kind of cheapens your project and makes it look like you don't know what else to do. So you just move the camera because you think if you have cool camera work, it'll make you look more uh, professional. But in reality, you're just kind of overdoing it and it makes you look the opposite. So try to mix in static shots. Your camera doesn't always need to move. Number five, use Panasonic Any Leap Pro any loop pro rechargeable batteries for gears that takes double A's. Um, I'm a huge fan of Panasonic, Pan, gosh, I can't talk today. Panasonic any loop pro batteries, all of my microphones and anything else I own, uh, gear wise for my, my video gear that runs off of double A's. All of them I, I, I use with any loop pro rechargeable batteries. The any loop pros are, Amazing. Uh, and if you're looking to Google that, it's E-N-E-L-O-O-P. A-E-N-E-L-O-O-P. Any Loop Pro. They're by Panasonic. And you get like 500 life charges out of them or something like that. Um, and I have 32 or 36. I think I have 36 of them. And I have four chargers. The chargers uh, charge four at a time. Uh, typically, I can recharge through all of, you know, I can run through them all with two charges. Um you know, charge like 16 at a time. And that's usually enough. And I, and I, honestly, they'll last me for forever. I, I put these any loop pro rechargeable batteries in my, my wireless mics, for instance, and they'll go the entire day, like 12, 14 hours. They'll go the whole entire day. I mean, they are super reliable and I have not used, I have not purchased batteries, double A batteries or anything of that sort in six years, maybe something like that. I never do. I never have to because the AnyLoop Pros are so good. Um, they'll they'll power my mics all day all day long if I have any kind of um, any call kind of um, uh, small recorders like a Zoom recorder or anything like that. It'll power them for a long time. I mean, they're they're great. Um, you got to charge them overnight because they they take a little while to charge, but they'll last a long time and they hold their charge for a long time. So I, I definitely recommend them. I've saved a ton of money over the years because I don't have to buy trip uh, excuse me AA batteries anymore. I just use these Anylo Pros, um, and I have so many of them that I just I'll charge a handful and it'll get me through a project. And half of them I don't even ever use unless I'm going on a big trip or something. But Anyway, I, I highly recommend them. They're great batteries. They last a very long time, and they'll save you from having to buy double A's. Number six, use Before You Fly app to check the airspace for drone flights. So Before You Fly is the letter B, the number four, the letter U, and then F-L-Y. It's all one word, Before You Fly. That is an app that you can get off of um, uh, like your uh, Apple store and I think you can get it for uh, for um, Android as well. I don't know that for sure because I don't run Android phones, but I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression you can. And the Before You Fly app is amazing. It essentially, um, and there are other apps out there, but this one is um, the best that I have personally found. And the Before You Fly app, basically you pull it up and it sees where your location is and it will tell you the airspace. Is it clear or do you, are you in some sort of an airspace? And if you are, uh, is it in what what class is the airspace? And do you or do you not need to request permission from a local um, uh, 
uh, tower in order to be able to fly your drone. That's what this is for. So if you have a drone and or you need to get a drone shot with your drone and you're on location, you just pop this app up. And if you're in a if you're in an airspace that's not controlled, it'll literally just say clear for takeoff and you can get up and fly. Um, if you are in controlled airspace, it'll tell you the class and will tell you if you need to get um, permission or not. And if you do, you can request permission right there from inside the app. And you can use that to, to get that permission and to uh, contact the local resources to get air clearance. And that's a great way to go. I, I use this constantly. Um, and, and what's really cool is you don't have to even use it the day you get there. You can use it ahead of time. Like this Friday, I have two projects I'm shooting in Bastrop, Texas. And I was able to put in the coordinates for both projects and check the airspace from here at my office. And it told me before I ever got there if it was in controlled airspace or not. And it's not. but uh, It's clear. Both locations are clear. But if they were in a controlled airspace, I could have requested permission. Uh, a few months ago, I did a project for the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and every shot I had to get with my drone was in controlled airspace. Um, there's a big airport nearby. So I, I went through and I requested permission for all the days and times that I wanted to fly. Like if I knew I wanted to fly on a Friday um, from like 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., for instance, I would request airspace time through the app and it would either get me approved or not approved and I got approved for every date and time I wanted to fly and they literally just rerouted planes past the airspace while I flew in that airspace on those days and times. Now you still have to pay attention. Some people might still come through with a helicopter or plane. That happens and has happened to me. I had airspace and I was flying over a football stadium there in Louisiana, a college stadium, big college stadium. And here comes this helicopter flying right over the stadium at almost the same height as my drone, and I had to drop the drone into the stadium to get out of its way. So just because you request and get permission to fly in airspace doesn't mean you, you don't have to pay attention anymore. You still do. <laughs> but it gives you legal permission to do it and helps minimize potential risks and potential hazards. If you have your drone license, this is an essential tool for you. you if you have your license and you're flying for pay or for commercially in any way, um, you pull up this app and, and you, you get permission or just at least see what the airspace is. If you do not have your drone license, you should still use this app because even if you do not have a license, it still tells you if you can or cannot fly in an area. And if you cannot, it tells you if you can request permission or if you'll never be able to get it. And if you can, you can then request permission. Um, so it's an, it's an app that everybody who has a drone should have. Um, so it's Before You Fly. Um, it's the Before You Fly app. Out of all the ones I've worked with, this is my favorite, and I think it's an essential tool that every drone operator should have. Number seven, always keep a roll of gaff tape in your kit. Gaff tape is something I use constantly. It's the equivalent of having painter's tape, if you're a painter. You need gaff tape. Um, I use gaff tape to tape lights to things if I want to mount a light to a wall or something. I use gaff tape to tape down XLR cables when shooting interviews so no one trips and falls or you know busts my gear or anything like that. I use gaff tape to hold objects or to hold uh, uh, props. I use gaff tape for tons of stuff. I've repaired things with gaff tape. If you are a videographer, you need gaff tape. Always have a roll on you and have a backup roll in a case somewhere else. It's just good to have gaff tape. There's a million plus things you can use it for. So just go online, Google gaff tape and buy some. Number eight, get a media pass for flying your gear. If you fly or if you 
fly for work at all in the video or photography world and you are um, doing it for any sort of pay, go online and get a media pass. I think I used, I can't remember the name of the website for sure, but I think it was like idcreator.com or something like that. And I made a media pass that says my name, it's got my picture, my business name. Um, I even have like a QR code on there that you can scan that takes you straight to my website. And I created all that on idcreator.com. I took a couple hours and just made it, put an expiration date, what I, you know, what my position in the company was. And it says media pass on it and it has a front and a back. And, uh, and I bought it from them, had it laminated and everything. And it looks like a driver's license almost. And, um, and I have, it's got my picture and date of birth, all that on there. It looks legit. And I take that with me to airports. And, uh, whenever I'm flying to somewhere for a job, I just show them my media pass and I get media rates. Now, not every airline does this, but the vast majority of airlines do. So you can go up, tell them that you're, uh, you have a media pass and they'll look at your card and um, they'll get you uh, media rates, which are basically discounts on uh, on your gear and how much it costs to fly each of your bags. It gives you better rates. The other thing it does is, uh, like I was coming back from Louisiana on a shoot one time with some guys, and we showed our media passes at the gate. Um, we'd already used it to get better rates, but then when we got to the gate, we showed it again, and we got priority boarding and got to board before anyone so that we were guaranteed a place to put our gear in the uh, overhead storage bin and not not every gate person will do that but some of them will you just walk up show your media pass and just say hey look i have a media pass i'm you know i've got my equipment with me could i get priority boarding so i could load my gear up uh, and make sure i have a place to put it i have a lot of expensive camera equipment and most you know a lot of times they'll say yes and sometimes they might ask can, I, can we see your gear and you just open your case let them see some cameras and they'll just be like oh okay sure and they'll let you through um so that's a that's a really good thing to have i even on my cases i have uh, my logo i have um i bought some uh logo decals I put on my cases and stuff. So when you see my pass and then you see my cases and I usually have like a hat on with my logo and they know, you know, it's, it's legit and they'll give that to you. So it doesn't cost a lot of money to get a media pass. Just go on idcreator.com, make one up and, uh, and it'll work. Number nine, invest in SSD drives for quick transfers at the end of the day. Um, essentially I have, uh, I have storage drives that I permanently put all my all my footage on when I get back from a trip. These storage drives are, I run Seagate drives and they're, they're usually 10 or 12 terabytes and I buy them in pairs. And uh, one, one, I label them like 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B. And those are always pairs. And I, I back up all my footage from a shoot on 1A and 1B, for instance. That way I have duplicate copies. One sits in a, in a fireproof case off-site, and the other stays here at my office. That's a great way to do it. But when I'm in the field, I've got to, let's just say I'm gone for a week on a shoot, I've got to have drives to dump my footage on um, to, to hold my footage until I get home. And I used to run uh, Seagate passport drives uh, I had a couple of, I have four, four terabyte Seagate passport drives and I'd take those with me, um, on, on travel shoots. And every night after I was done shooting for the day, I'd dump all my footage to a duplicate set of those drives until I was done with the project. So I had, I had, uh, basically two, two, uh, like, uh, 1A, 1B, and then 2A, 2B. So I had eight terabytes of duplicate storage space between the four drives and I would, I would have tons 
and tons of space to dump footage to, you know, I could do two, I could go on usually like one or two different trips and take those drives with me on both trips and back all my footage up. But the problem with those drives is that they're slower because they're, they're just storage drives. They're not meant for speed, right? Same thing with the storage drives at home, my big Seagate drives. Uh, what, so what I eventually did was I ended up switching to SSD drives. They're more expensive, um, but um, I use SSD drives when I'm in the field now um, because I can dump a 160 gigabyte CF Express Type A card from like my FX6 or my A7S3. I can dump 160 gigabyte cards uh, card in five minutes, literally 160 gigs, five minutes. And what that does is it dramatically speeds up your downtime in um, dumping footage. So if I filled up four cards, it'd take me 20 minutes to back them up to two, to two, C, two, two SSD drives, 20 minutes. Uh, and so by having these CF express type A cards, you know, faster cards, if you invest in faster cards, this is one of the benefits. And then on top of that, I mean, there's other benefits, but that's, a, this is one of them. And then on top of that, if you get SSD, um, field drives and you, and you back your footage up after the shoot day on SSD drives, you could dump super, super, super fast. And make no mistake, like that's a realistic thing. It used to take me like 30 minutes to back up a 128 gigabyte card. And if I shot on four cards, that's two hours. You know, that's two hours of my time gone after the shoot. That's two hours that I can't be relaxing or two hours I can't be um, eating dinner, you know. And, and that's a real thing for those of you out there who travel and film, whether it's for work or whether it's for yourself. If you're backing up your footage every night, you know what it's like to tie up your computer and have to stay up and do that. So if you can get SSD drives as your field drives and you can back up to those, you can back up in no time at all. Now, you have to have a fast card too. If you have a really slow memory card in your camera and a blazing fast SSD drive, then it doesn't matter. You'll be bottlenecked on the camera's card. But if you have fast cards for your camera, like UHS-2, CF Express Type-A, stuff like that, and you have an SSD drive, you can back up footage very, very, very fast. Same thing goes with, with photography. And it allows you to just speed up your downtime so you can dump, check your stuff, back it up, and move on. Um, it gives you more time to, to rest, more time to sleep, more time to relax and eat dinner. Um, so to me, that's a real world thing. So I say for number nine, invest in SSD drives for quick transfers at the end of the day. Number 10, try to have your A cam and B cams be of the same brand for easy color matching. I used to mix and match camera brands. I had Panasonic, Blackmagic, uh, Canon, and Sony all at the same time, and it was terrible trying to get them to look remotely similar. Uh, I'd come back and I'd use like Sony's for low light and Blackmagic for raw and Panasonic for slow motion and 4K and Canon just because it's Canon and and I'd come home and I'd be trying to color match everything and it was a chore it was a nightmare um, but for the past I don't know six or seven years probably seven years I've shot all one brand and that has allowed me to when I come home, when I go to color match stuff, it takes me no time at all. So when I'm in post-production, if I want to match my A cam, my B cam, my C cam, they match up super, super easy. The only ones that are not the same brand are my drone and my GoPros, but I shoot them in log and I can get them to match pretty similarly. Um, but they aren't my heavy lifting cameras. My A cams and my B cams, they're the ones that I'm putting most of, the, most of my time in on. And so if I can come home and have them you know, match really similarly because they're the same brand and similar color science. It just saves me a ton of time. So don't, you know, do yourself a favor. Don't try to spend all your time trying to match a Canon and a Sony or 
a Sony and a Panasonic, like get the same brand between an A cam and B cam if you can, uh, because it will allow you to save yourself a lot of time in post. Number 11, use lens support for heavier lenses. Guys, don't hang a 50 to 500 Sigma off your camera. You don't need to do that. <laughs> I, I've seen guys do that and it actually loosens up the lens mount and it can destroy it or at least weaken it. Uh, don't do that. If you have a heavier lens, put lens support on it. If you're using a big lens with a very small mirrorless camera, then mount the lens to your tripod and hang the camera off the back. But if both are kind of heavy, if you've got an FS7 or an FX6 or something like that that's a little bigger, don't mount the lens and hang that off the back. It's the same thing. So don't hang the camera, a heavy camera, off the back of a big lens and don't hang a big lens off of the back of a heavy camera. It's just not, not a good idea. It'll weaken the mount. It could break it off. It's a weak spot. Don't do it. Use lens support on rails. It'll save you headache down the road and it'll save you from damaging your camera. So don't don't think that just because you can pick up a camera and your heavy lens is hanging off of it, don't think that, oh, it's, you know, it, it held it, it's okay, don't do that, it's not good, support it. Number 12, buy an easy rig if you do a lot of handheld shooting. I bought an easy rig towards the beginning of the year, hands down one of the best investments I ever made. Um, I, I've shot a lot of handheld shots over the years, a lot of projects, dock projects where I'm shooting off the shoulder all day long. I was in Vegas, I, I shot several days in Vegas a couple years back all off the shoulder the entire day, just absolutely wore me out. Fishing shows off the shoulder all day, just absolutely wore me out. Um, you know, cause you're sitting there, you're trying to balance the camera, hold it, position it, frame it, pull focus, all this stuff. It's just a lot going on, but an easy rig, oh my God, I could shoot all day on an easy rig. And I have, ever since I bought it, I, I wear it and I, I mount it to the top of my camera's handle and, and it, I can literally let go and the camera's just hanging in front of me, just hanging there. <laughs> all I'm doing is, is just controlling the camera. The weight is being distributed to my waist. It's amazing. And I can shoot all day like that. So fishing shows, dock projects, anything like that. If I'm shooting a lot of handheld shots that throw, throw on the easy rig, I could shoot all day long with that thing. It's absolutely amazing. And it makes me a better videographer because I'm not getting wore out or I'm not trying to sacrifice my positioning of the camera in order to be comfortable. It holds the camera for me. So I'm just kind of pointing and filming. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. Number 13, learn to shoot handheld without IBIS or lens IS. This is something I had to fight with. It has been a struggle for me. I, I'll have like a camera like the FX6 and I'll want to shoot it at for handheld shots, but it doesn't have IBIS. Um, most cinema cameras do not. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't realize this, but the reason why a lot of cameras don't have IBIS, uh, cinema cameras don't have IBIS, is because IBIS can actually be a negative thing. Sometimes it can drift. Um, you don't want that on a big budget shoot. And then on top of that, if you mount like a, like a cinema camera to a car, for instance, and the car is vibrating a lot, IBIS, the, the sensor can't control, can't stop that. And what ends up happening is, is, see, IBIS, the sensor moves around with IBIS, right, to help stabilize the shot. Well, if you have a sensor that, you know, is not locked down and it can move around, that's great if you're handheld shooting, but if you mount that camera to a car and the car's vibrating down the road, that sensor's vibrating too, and it actually destroys the footage. And so IBIS is great for run and gun and handheld stuff, but if you're mounting like a cinema camera to a car, to shoot something like Mad Max, you don't want to do that because that sensor is going to be bouncing around. It's just not going to look good. Plus, again, IBIS can be uncontrolled 
in in certain high-end shoots for really high-end, like a Mad Max type thing. You don't want that. You want to have full control over everything. So this is why most cinema cameras don't have IBIS. Plus, IBIS is hard to put into a camera that also has ND filters internal. That's something that people are trying to figure out right now. So as such, your FX6s, your FX9s, your FS7s, your C300 Mark III's, your C500 Mark II's, your Panasonic Vericam LTs, your Blackmagic uh, Ursa Mini Pros, none of those have uh, have IBIS in them, reds, none of them. So if you don't have IBIS in the camera and you're sh shooting with a cinema camera um, and you want to shoot handheld, not on a gimbal, but handheld, which is a great way to shoot. If you want to shoot handheld without IBIS, then you, you either have to be really great at handheld shooting or you have to, to use a lens with image stabilization. Well, the problem with lenses that have image stabilization is you're, you're really limiting yourself. You're having to take like a, a, a 24 to 105. Like, look at Canon's 24 to 105. That is not the best lens in the world. Not not their Mark One, not their Mark Two, not even the one that they have for Canon RF mount. It's not a bad lens necessarily, but it's not a great lens either. It ramps when you zoom in, even even though it says it's a constant f4, it clearly loses light when you zoom in. Um, there's a lot of chromatic aberration with that kind of a lens. It's just not the greatest lens. If you look at Sony's 24 to 105, uh, the manual focus on that lens is terrible to work with, terrible. But a lot of people shoot with it because it has image stabilization. And so, and these are just two examples, but there are a lot of really good lenses out there, 24 to 70s, cinema glass. Look at cinema glass. Cinema glass doesn't have IBIS in it. You have uh, you have some Sony and some Canon um, Cine servo zooms that have IBIS, or not IBIS, but lens IS. But traditional Cine glass does not have image stabilization. So if you want to shoot handheld with an FX9 or FX6 or a, or a RED, for instance, you don't you don't you won't want to be forced to use a 24 to 105, for example, just to have lens image stabilization. You don't want that. Like if you want to shoot with a red and you want to shoot with a cine prime or a cine zoom, how do you overcome that? How do you shoot handheld on a camera that doesn't have IBIS and a lens that doesn't have lens IS? Now, some people will say, well, you just, you know, you go into post-production and you stabilize in post, but that's a terrible workflow, right? Not to mention it can warp your image. So what's the best solution here? What do you do? If you're shooting with a camera, a cinema camera, and you don't want to be stuck on using a lens with image stabilization, what do you do? And the reality is you just learn and perfect the handheld shooting technique. And that's something I've been really trying to do the last 12 months because I love my FX6, for instance, and I love shooting handheld with it. Um, but I don't want to use image stabilized lenses. I don't want to be forced to use them. I want to use better looking glass. 514 primes, 24 to 72 eights, cine glass. I want to use stuff like that. And if I'm going to use those kinds of lenses on a camera that doesn't have image stabilization, then I am forced to learn the, a proper handheld shooting technique. And I have learned in the past 12 months how important that is, how to, to learn how to shoot handheld without relying on image stabilization. And it's been a, it's been a journey trying to perfect that t technique, but I highly recommend it because it opens up so many doors because now you're not shopping for glass that has image stabilization and limiting yourself, or you're not looking at IBIS on a camera as your saving grace. If you learn a proper handheld shooting technique, how to get really stable shots without relying on the camera to do the stabilization for you, then it just opens up so many doors. And one of the things that I use to, to help me with that is my Easy Rig. 
because it supports the camera for me. And then I kind of cradle the camera into my body and I film that way. Or I'll run a shoulder rig and I'll press my eye up into a viewfinder and my right hand on the right grip and my left hand on the lens and my shoulders obviously supporting it from the bottom. And I'll tuck the cam my cheek into the right side of the camera. So I'm giving it all these points of contact. Plus the easy rig is holding it from the top. And so I'm doing all of these things to help me be able to film handheld and get smooth, stable shots, but without having to rely on IBIS or lens image stabilization. Um, so I, I highly recommend that you, you go down that journey of learning how to shoot handheld without image stabilization. Um, and that way, if you ever want to use a cinema camera and a cine, cine prime or a cine zoom, or even just a, a 50 millimeter prime or a 24-70-2.8, you won't have to freak out and go to a gimbal or something like that, or, or cheapen your lens and go to 24 to 105 because it's the only one with, with Im image stabilization. So I think learning how to shoot handheld um, without having to rely on image stabilization is, is really important as a shooter. If you can learn that technique and get it, develop a good technique there, it'll just unlock a lot more doors for you. Number 14, learn to shoot with a viewfinder. A lot of people I know don't, use viewfinders. I don't understand that. Um, I live in a viewfinder. If I'm shooting with a mirrorless camera, for instance, half the time I'm shooting, if I'm shooting handheld with it, half the time I'm putting it up to my viewfinder, uh, my eye up to viewfinder. In fact, I would say like 90% of the time I am. Um, the whole hold the camera in front of your body thing just is not a great way to shoot because if you're holding the camera like a mirrorless camera in front of your body, you're just like supporting it with your hands. And this actually kind of plays into my last tip, which is learning to shoot handheld without relying on image stabilization. If you're sticking your camera out in front of you and are looking at the monitor, you are 100% reliant upon image stabilization at that point. Otherwise, your footage is going to be shaky because you're just holding the camera with, two, with your two hands. But if you shoot with a viewfinder, you can tuck that, you know, you, you pulled the camera, you pulled it up to your face and you put your face in that viewfinder. You now have uh, a right hand point of contact, a left hand point of contact, and now your face is a point of contact. And it makes you so much more stable. And it's a much, much, much more stable way to shoot. Plus the viewfinder allows you to see a lot better in bright light. It allows you to see fine details better. Viewfinders are phenomenal. My a7S III has an amazing viewfinder. I look through it every chance I get because it's so much better than the screen. Uh, and that's actually why I'm not interested in the Sony FX3. Um, I would rather have the a7S III than the FX3 because the FX3 doesn't have a viewfinder. And that's a huge, huge, huge misstep in my point. Having a viewfinder is so important for me and on a daily basis. Same thing goes even with my FX6. I, I have a Zacuto Z Finder on my FX6, which basically turns my FX6's monitor into a loop. It just drops a loop down, so it's now a viewfinder. And so I can uh, look into a viewfinder, press my eye up into it. Again, great for shooting in brighter lighting conditions. I can see things, find details better, and it gives me another point of contact when shooting handheld. So having a viewfinder is extremely important, and that's why you'll see DPs on high-end Hollywood shoots. They always have their eyes buried into viewfinder. It's just important. Um, and especially if shooting any kind of handheld or doing any kind of handheld work. So learn to shoot with a viewfinder, get comfortable with it, and don't rely on the back of, uh, of your monitor. Viewfinders are a great tool if your camera has one. 
uh, and you're not using it, you're missing out on one of the best pieces of the camera. 15, don't hire more crew than you really need. <laughs> I've had a lot of young guys recently that I have uh, hired as freelancers to help me with on projects. And uh, man, the number of these young guys that I have chatted with that have projects coming up that are not big projects, paying $2,500, maybe three grand tops. And they have an entire crew they're bringing. They're bringing a sound guy and a lighting guy and a grip and a second shooter, a designated gimbal operator, all this stuff so that they can simply just sit back and call the shots and, and, and be a producer. And I get it. Like you want to direct, you want to produce, you want to be in that role. I understand the desire to do that. But at the same time, you've, you've spent so much money on a sound guy and a lighting guy and a second shooter and all this stuff, which by the way, for 2,500 or three grand, those guys can't be that expensive because you're, you know, <laughs> you only have so much budget. But the point is, is these guys will end up making four or $500 in the whole job because they spent all their budget on crew crew that they don't even need. And I'll ask these young guys, why are you bringing all these people? And they'll say, well, I just know we'll you know, be better if we had a team approach. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't have, you're not making any money. And they're like, yeah, but it looks good. And I'm like, no, it doesn't look good. It actually makes you look like the Walmart of filming crews. Because if you, because <laughs> if you can, if you have, if someone could pay $3,000 or $2,500 and have an entire crew show up, that looks super cheap. That must be the world's cheapest crew. That's kind of what it looks like, right? Um, so don't hire more crew than you really need. Um, I understand the desire to have that again. And I think if you are, you know, if you want to bring people to help you on a project, that's fine, especially if it's a bigger budget project and you can afford it all. But if you are doing a smaller budget project, learn how to do your own audio, learn how to do your own lighting, learn how to run your own gimbal, learn how to pull a camera without a focus puller, learn how to do all these things um, because you'll make a lot more money because you don't need all of those people on a lower budget project. Again, if you're making you know, 30, 40, $50,000 on a commercial project and you want to bring an entire, you know, crew of people with you to help you, I get that. I can get behind that. But if you're making 2500 or $3,000, don't bring a crew, man. Do it all yourself or bring, maybe do it all of yourself plus maybe an, an assistant or or a grip. But don't, don't bring a crew when you don't need one. You're just throwing away your budget, really, and, and you'll end up making... A, a very little amount of money. And, and I'll tell you, most of these young guys that I've talked to that are doing this, they are living paycheck to paycheck. And some of them were even looking for full-time jobs because they weren't able to sustain uh, enough money to be able to make a living. And and the reality is, is because every time they got a project, they were convinced they had to have a crew and they were spending all their money on a crew. So if you're listening to this and you are in video and you're trying to make a living at it and you are struggling and it's because you're wasting all your money on a crew on a small budget project, Quit doing that. Learn to do this stuff yourself. It'll make you better in the long run because you'll understand uh, all of these different uh, uh, facets or facets of uh, video production. It'll make you better in the long run because you'll you'll have a better grasp on all these things, um, and you'll be able you won't be living paycheck to paycheck because you'll have more money in your pocket. Number sixteen. Back up your project files so that you can pull up old projects years down the road. Okay, so everybody knows you shouldn't throw away footage. You should back up all your footage. But what about the project files? I had a conversation recently with a guy who's been in video for like 30 plus years. And I couldn't believe it when he told me he had never backed up his project files. And I asked him why. And he said, well, once a project's done, it's done. Well, I don't need the project file anymore. It's a waste of space. And I'm, I said, well, first off, project files take up like megabytes. Like they're small. They're tiny. They, like, I don't understand why you throw that away. Second off, when you throw away a project file, you're throwing away all your work, right? 
just because you have the raw footage, raw footage isn't like the only thing you did on the project. You had to edit the project, right? So if you throw away your project file, you're throwing away all your editing work that you've done. And he's like, yeah, but why do I need it? I'm never going to pull it up again. Well, how do you know that, right? I have had numerous clients call me up and say, hey, man, remember that project you did for me a few years back? We changed our website name, and we also um, have a couple new employees. We want to know if we could pay you to come out for the day, get some more shots of our new employees, and see if you could swap out some of the old shots with some of the new employee shots and maybe change our website address or something. You know, I have that happen all the time. And if I would have deleted the project files like this guy I was talking to did, um, I'd have to re-edit the whole thing. The entire thing. And I'd either have to charge the client for the entire re-edit, which would make them mad, or I would have to eat that cost. And I don't want to do that either because that would make me mad. (laughs) So for me, I keep everything. Project files, music, sound effects, project notes, everything. It's all there on two duplicate backup drives, those big Seagate drives I talked about earlier. So I could literally pull up a project I did six or seven years ago. I could just find the drive that it's on, which I have a list of all my drives and what's on them. I just go to my list, look for the look for that project, see what drive it's on, pull, that, pull one of those drives up, one of the copies, plug it in the computer, and click on the project file, and it will open that project file in Premiere, and it will look exactly like it did seven years ago. Exactly where I left off as if I had just finished editing it the day before. I can pull it right back up and I can make those changes from a client and, uh, you know, be able to keep their cost down and allow me to be able to change out stuff in minutes. It's awesome. And so don't, don't delete your project files. Plus I even bring up old project files cause I'll, I'll maybe uh, cut part of it out and put it in one of my own projects I'm working on. For instance, maybe it's a commercial for my business and maybe I want to pull up a, a snippet out of another project and I don't want to take it out of the exported file but rather the raw project file and so I'll, I'll pull that up and get it from it and so like I really there's no reason there's zero reason to delete um, your project file it takes up no space so save not just your footage and but all the content including project files so you can pull up projects years down the road um, and and trust me there will come a time if not multiple times where that'll pay off for you All right, so number 17, um, stop down your lens for sun stars. Have you ever seen really cool looking sun stars where, I'm not talking about flares, I'm talking about stars, sun stars. It's where like someone's shooting a sunset, a photograph or sunset time lapse, for instance, and the stars are just popping. It looks like the sun looks like a a little ball in the middle with all these star points that come out. Um, To achieve that, if you want to get that look, stop your lens down. Because what's happening is, is your aperture, as it closes down, um, the different blades of that aperture are creating these spikes, these star spikes. It looks really cool. So if you shoot at like F10, F11, F16, you'll see these these, uh, star shapes. Now, I typically don't like to stop my lenses down a a ton because there's this thing called diffraction. I'm not going to go into that today. Um, but diffraction is a negative thing that can happen when you stop your lens down too far. If you don't know what diffraction is, Google it. Um, but if you do want sun stars, you do have to do that. That's what you do. You stop your lens down, and the, the aperture blades in your lens will create those sun stars. Now, it's important to note that some lenses have more blades in their apertures than others, and therefore they create more sun stars or better looking sun stars. So uh, the number of blades affects the quality of the star or what it looks like. Some, some lenses are great with some stars, some are not. 
Um, I know my Canon 16 to 35 f2.8 L3 that I used to own. Well, it had the most incredible Sunstars I had ever seen. That was the version three of Canon 16 to 35 2.8 L glass, and it, it was amazing. I mean, the Sunstars were just phenomenal. I shot with them every chance I got. Um, but on my Sony 16 to 35 G Master, for instance, it doesn't have the best sun stars. Um, in fact, I, they're kind of just, I don't know, they're just nowhere near as good as the Canon. So it just kind of depends on the lens. And you can Google a lens you're interested in or a lens you own. You can go online and Google sun stars for that lens, and they'll, you'll, there'll usually be some reviews that talk about what the sun stars are like for that lens so you can get an idea. Um, but anyway, to, to how you get it is you stop your lens down, shoot into the sun, and you usually want to either shoot the sun itself or the sun behind an object uh, where part of the sun is sticking out. Both will create stars, and that's how you achieve it. Um, number 18, don't use focus assist when shooting video. Uh, real brief, you know, focus assist is something that when you change focus, if it's turned on when you're racking focus, for instance, or looking for your focus, the lens, uh, the the camera will automatically zoom in um, to assist you, so you can get a closer view of what you are uh, focusing on. Kind of like focus mag, but it's like activated instantly when you turn your focus ring. Um, that's a cool thing to have if you're shooting photos, but you don't want it if you're shooting video because when you're pulling focus on video, you don't want your your uh, camera to be um, cropping in so you can get a closer look at what you're focusing on. And it's not like baking in the crop, but the problem is that if you're if you're pulling focus on a moving shot and all of a sudden it zooms in four times, <laughs> then you're losing your ability to tell where your framing is. It's going to screw your shot up. Um, so so use focus peaking. Um, not focus assist so, uh, for video. So turn focus assist off. You don't want your camera automatically using focus magnifier when you're when you're turning the focus ring. That's not a good combination to have when you're pulling focus. 19, don't bother with solar chargers when on backcountry shoots. Instead, bring lots of batteries. I've done a lot of backcountry shoots, horseback shoots, shoots where I'm in the mountains for several weeks. And uh, I used to have a lot of solar gear to try to help me charge that stuff. I had a lot of goal zero solar chargers. And to be honest with you, they just never really worked that well. I still have some goal zero chargers, uh, solar panels, and I use them to charge my cell phone when I'm on a backcountry project, but I don't use them to charge camera batteries because it's just a waste of time. If you want solar, get solar for your phone or GPS or small stuff like that. But if you, if you, if you're bringing your camera equipment and you're doing a backcountry um, filming shoot, whether it's uh, some kind of a climbing expedition or whatever the project is, you're really better off just bringing a lot of batteries. Charge a lot of batteries, store them, bring them, and just using them. And if you don't have a bunch, buy them and build that into your budget for the project or rent them. But either way, just bring a bunch of batteries. When I went to Pakistan, I didn't know if I was going to be able to charge batteries or not there because um, we were going to be doing a lot of stuff off the grid. So I brought I think 30 Sony Alpha batteries. And I just, uh, over the two weeks we were there, I was just cautious and I shot, you know, like two a day. And and that doesn't sound like a lot. Some days I shot less than others. Other days I shot more, but I just was careful and I paid attention to what I was doing. I didn't leave my camera on all the time. I turned it on when I wanted to get shots and then I turned it back off to conserve energy. And I had 30 batteries with me and I made it through the entire two weeks on those 30 batteries. And again, I had to be careful, um, but I was able to make it. And uh, I, there would have not, there was no way I was going to be able to charge batteries in that project. Same thing when I went to Mongolia, same thing when I went to my uh, 
first Alaska trip. It was two weeks back, country horseback. I just brought a bunch of batteries. So that's that's my advice. Um, so number 20 is when using a GoPro all day, plug it up to USB charger. Um, a good example of this, when I when I filmed uh, fishing shows in the past, I wouldn't try to bring a bunch of time, a bunch of, uh, GoPro batteries because I don't have time to keep changing GoPro batteries on the boat. I'm running around filming the angler because at any minute he could hook into a big fish. Um, but I want my GoPros rolling the entire time so that when he does hook into a big fish, um, I, I, I know I'm going to get it on camera. So to power my GoPros the whole time, I bring uh, I brought USB chargers and I brought gaff tape, again gaff tape, and I taped them to rails on the boat and just plugged them up the GoPros and let them run all day. Um, and it works really well. Anchor is the brand I like, A-N-K-E-R. Anchor makes the best uh, USB chargers I've ever dealt with. I could charge so much stuff off of one anchor uh, battery. I love it. It's so good. Um, so I'd bring my anchor and man, if you charge up an anchor battery and you don't use it for five months, it'll still be fully charged. It's amazing. But the anchor uh, brick is what I brought and, and I would just gaff tape it to the boat railing, uh, one per GoPro and just plug the GoPro up to it with USB-C and empower the GoPro all day. Now, if it's rainy out, GoPro's newer cameras come uh, have an option online to buy something called a pass-through door. And it's basically you swap the door out on the side of the GoPro for a door that has a uh, water-sealed um, plug hole for USB-C. And you would plug, uh, it comes with a USB-C cable, you plug it in that door, and it will allow you to plug it up to a USB charger and... Um, keep it plugged in even in the rain. Now, I wouldn't go diving with that, but if you just want to, you know, if you want to power your GoPro all day, even in the rain, that is an option. You could put a rain cover around or a bag or something around your uh, battery charger, your USB charger, and then let the uh, camera have the pass-through door and it'll keep it watertight even in the rain. So that's a suggestion. Plug up your GoPro to a charger, power it all day. Um, I do that for all kinds of stuff. It works really well. Number 21, use a low-cut filter on your camera, uh, shotgun mic, to help reduce handling noise. Um, a lot of us use shotgun mics on our cameras for ambient audio or nat sound, but if you ever had a camera shotgun mic on uh, on your camera and, and, and picked up handling noise from you touching the camera or changing buttons and stuff, handling noise is something you don't want. You can't really get rid of some of the button changing and stuff if you're really careless with that. But handling noise itself, where you're touching the camera, you don't want to hear that in your audio. And a lot of times uh, you, you will. Certain mics are real susceptible to handling noise um, and certain microphone mounts are real susceptible to handling noise. And you'll know it right away. You'll be monitoring your audio and, with your headphones and you'll hear this like thudding sound, this boom, 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 every time you touch something on your camera. That's handling noise. That thud, that thuddy sound, that bassy sound you hear, that's what it is. Or maybe you are filming and you come home and you're editing and you hear that thum, 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 thum every time you touch a camera. That's handling noise. So in order to get rid of that handling noise, because that's terrible, you don't want that, um, turn on a low cut filter. Basically what you're doing at that point is you're cutting out the lower frequencies. 
Uh, what handling noise is, is it's picking up low frequencies. And when you touch a camera, that, that touching sound is a low frequency noise. And what the low cut filter is doing is it's cutting out any low frequencies and it's not recording them, only higher frequencies. And it only does it to a certain point. So you can still, like if a car drives by, car noise, muffler noise, still has a lower frequency. You'll still hear it, but you're just cutting out some of the lowest frequencies, which typically include the touching frequencies of you touching a camera. Um, and if you don't have a, if you don't have a mic that has a low cut filter, then in post, if you're working in uh, on a project, you can usually put your project into audition and you can use the, a low cut filter in audition and do it by hand and cut out the frequencies that way. So that's an, uh, another alternative option. I try to do it in the field though. So that when I'm handing my project off to an editor or if I'm editing it myself, I'm not, that's just one more step I don't have to worry about. So if I hear, if on my camera, if I hear handling noise, I turn on a low cut filter on my mic and I cut that out. Some cameras have low cut filter options. Mics have, uh, certain mics have low cut filter options. And if neither your camera or your mic has it, then just do it in post, but that's how you get rid of that noise. Number 22, the log look is not really a look. For the love of all things, guys, color your log shots. This has been, I've talked to several other producer friends of mine, and this has been like a thing we've seen lately, a trend where uh, people want to film in log, but they don't know how to color it. So they shoot in log and then leave it as if it was a look <laughs> and they don't really color it at all. It's just flat looking images and they call it a look. Oh yeah, this is the log look. It's not a look guys. You shot in log and you don't know how to color it. That's what it is. <laughs> And I see this all the time on YouTube videos online and it drives me nuts. And, and, and I still occasionally will look up outdoor hunting shows or fishing shows just for fun when I'm drinking coffee in the morning. And I've noticed that this is really prevalent in the outdoor world where guys are experimenting with log, but they don't know how to color it. So they leave it blank. And I've even experienced this years ago. I shot some projects in log um, and I told the editor up front for a hunting show, hey, I'm going to be shooting these in log. And he's like, yeah, 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 that's great. Uh, but then whenever the show aired, I never got to see the show after it was cut and it aired and I called him because it was all black and white and gray looking. It clearly wasn't colored. And I was like, dude, what happened? How come you didn't color the shots? He's like, well, I thought that was the look you wanted. The look I wanted? I shot it log. There's no color. That's not a look. It's, it's, it looks raw. Like you, <laughs> you were supposed to put color in on it, man. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> So the log look is not a look, guys. If you're going to shoot in log, learn to color grade. Um, I have two videos in the Filming with Josh Facebook group, one I did last year and one I did last week, that show you how fast it is to color grade log. There's two quick ways. You can do it by hand by adjusting curves and saturation, or you can go the LUT route. I do both in my work. It's super easy. You can color log in seconds. Look on the Filming with Josh page, watch those videos, learn how to how to color grade log. It is so freaking easy. But if you do not want to touch that or you're too lazy to learn how to do it, then shoot in a standard picture profile because the log look is a lazy look. That's what it is. I'm just going to call it what it is. It sounds harsh, but it is. It's lazy. You know, if you shoot in log, you don't color it. It's lazy and it doesn't look good. Learn to shoot and log and grade it or shoot in a standard picture profile profile and go that route, one or the other, but don't shoot and log and put out a project that's not colored. That's just stupid. Number 23, turn on relay recording if your camera has it. Relay recording 
is essentially an option in a lot of cameras that have dual card slots where when one card fills up, it instantly and automatically starts recording to the other card without skipping a beat or losing a frame. Um, if you're filming interviews, for instance, and your card one fills up, it will automatically kick in and start recording on card two. And if you go to post and you pull up the last shot on card one and the first shot on card two, they'll be the same, uh, you know, the same recording shot. And if you combine them together, you'll see that it won't even skip a frame. It's amazing. So relay recording is super useful if you're filming wildlife and you don't want to stop recording, but your card's about to be full. If you have a second card plugged into your other card slot and you have relay recording turned on, then you can keep rolling. And as soon as it fills up that card, it'll kick into the other one. You don't have to stop recording. If you're doing interviews, you're filming events, anything like that, where you can't really stop and switch cards, have two cards plugged in, have relay recording turned on, and it'll kick into card two automatically. And then you can actually hot swap while it's recording in card two. You can pull out card one and put another card in. And theoretically, you could record back and forth and never stop recording. If your camera doesn't have a 30-minute recording limit, then you could theoretically record an entire day without stopping recording, theoretically. Um, to, you know, again, depending on your camera, if it does, if it doesn't have a 30 minute record limit. Um, but yeah, relay recording is amazing. It allows you just to go from one card to the next without skipping a beat. It does the same thing with burst photography or something like that. If you're shooting photos really fast, if you have it turned on and you fill up your card, it'll kick into the next card and keep shooting photos. It's pretty amazing. Number 24, use bars and tone to split up scenes for your editor. If your camera has this, not all do, most cinema cameras do, uh, or video cameras do, um, most mirrorless do not. Um, but if your camera does have it, like the FS7, FX6, I know for a fact they have it. I think even Panasonic's GH mirrorless line uh, and their newer um, full frame line, I believe they have bars and tone too. And I love bars and tone. Basically, it's just, it's that noise that you hear with a bunch of color bars on top of the screen. Kind of hard to describe on a podcast, but basically these color bars come on the screen and there's a tone noise that comes on with it. And why I like it is what I use it for is if I'm filming and I'm going to be editing the project later on and I want to remember when I went from one scene to the next, or maybe I'm handing a project off to an editor and I want to split up, okay, all of these files go with this one scene and all of these go with another, then while I'm shooting, when I'm done with like an interview, for instance, I can turn on bars and tone and record that for 10 seconds and then go, you know, film something else for a while. And when I'm done with that something else, I can turn on bars and tone and record it for 10 seconds and then go film something else. And what happens is it breaks it all up in post. So my editor, when he's going through my project, every time he sees a bars and tone recording, he knows that that's the end of all end of a scene. And if I'm on, and then, and then he sees another group of files and then bars and tone again, he knows that all of those go together for another scene. So I use it to kind of split stuff up simply so that, um, when my editor is going through my files, he doesn't have a billion files that he's just staring at. They're actually split up by bars and tone to kind of make it a little easier to go through. Number 25, keep your camera build as small as possible. I know so many people and, and, and I did this too, um, when I first got into video, but who will take a camera and build it up with, man, everything, shoulder rig, monitor, um, <laughs> uh, they got mics and recorders hanging every direction. They have 
all of these different things, just so much stuff that they don't need hanging on the camera. Some of it you might genuinely need, and that's fine. I mount stuff to my cameras. But a lot of times people will just convince themselves they need stuff and they'll just mount it to their camera and their cameras will end up being gi these ginormous rigs. And there's a time and a place for a rig, but at the same time, like if you can just say, do I really need this? And ask yourself that question, do I just, do I really need this? And if you don't, take it off. Because what will end up happening is, is you'll keep your camera build pretty small and concise. So when you're in the field and you're filming, um, you won't wear yourself out as easily. Uh, I would much rather have a stripped down camera that has only what I need on it so that I can run all day and not wear myself out. It makes me a better videographer because I'm not thinking about my camera. I'm just using it. I want my camera to be small, compact, and comfortable. Um, so I, I, you know, there's a, again, there's a time and place to build it out huge, um, but most people don't need it as big as they build it. And that was me. I mean, if you look at some old photographs, I posted some a couple months ago of my, my rig when I was um, back in college. You should have seen that thing. It was massive. <laughs> but if I really looked at it, I didn't need half the crap I had on there. I just, I didn't really need a focus wheel, follow focus wheel. I just put it on there because I thought I needed it. I didn't really need a seven inch monitor off the back. I just thought I did. And so I had all this stuff on there. And again, there's a time and place for that. some of that. I like monitors when I'm shooting certain certain shots, um, but you don't need half the stuff you think you do a lot of times. So keep your keep your camera small and concise and your build kind of small if you can, and, and you'll, you'll be glad you did um, when you're filming day in and day out. Number 26, avoid all-in-one zoom lenses. If I had a dollar for every person that came to me looking for what's the best all-in-one all zoom lens, and they want it for all kinds of stuff, whether it's an event, whether it's filming a hunt, whether they're just shooting something like a wedding or something, and they just want to have like a lens that can do everything. There is really no do it all lens. And if you get all in one zoom lenses, they're usually cheap and they're cheaply made and they're bad at focusing, really bad at manual focusing, really, really bad. And that's important. I mean, what, what good's a lens? If it has the entire, entire focal length, you know, a huge range of focal lengths in it, what's, what's the point of that if you can't pull focus on it because the focus is so bad? Uh, and usually the lenses will breathe, meaning when you change focus, the lens zooms in and out as you change focus. You don't want that. And they usually have bad chromatic aberration or purple fringing, which makes them look really not good. They're usually softer, especially on the edges. They usually suffer from things like um, vignetting. They typically um, just have a lot of issues. They ramp where the f-stop changes dramatically from like f4 to f, you know, six something or another and and it's just usually you don't you don't want that all-in-one zoom lenses are just not not the best so try to avoid them if you really are desperate about having an all-in-one zoom lens and you just feel like you have to have everything in one lens then maybe you ought to buy yourself a video camera that has a a really big zoom range because you might be better off with that number 27 use sandbags on your light and mic stands if you have light stands or mic stands for boom mics, if you throw a sandbag on the stand or a couple sandbags, it'll help them from uh, keep from getting knocked over by people. Or if you're filming outside, it'll help the wind from blowing it over. It just makes things safer for your equipment and your talent. So buy sandbags. My experience is you typically don't have to have massive sandbags unless you're unless you just have a giant giant you know, uh, light lighting setup or mic setup. Most of the time you can get away with five to 10 pound sandbags. I usually have a five pound bags and, and my lights can usually be held 
securely um, with one sandbag, or if I want two, I can throw two five pounders on and it gives me 10 pounds. Usually that's enough. So I carry a bunch of, I carry like six or eight five pound sandbags with me, but they're great to have and I recommend them. You don't have to spend a lot of money on them. Just go to BH Photo, type in sandbag, get some cheap five pound sandbags. You'll be glad you did. Number 28 is don't use a storage drive uh, for editing. Um, a lot of times people will buy really um, nice computers, but will still have poor performance and editing, and usually it's the hard drive. They'll plug in something like a Seagate drive. I said earlier I use Seagate, like 10 or 12 terabyte drives um, to back my footage up to. I have, you know, like I said earlier, I do duplicates um, uh, per, per set, um, and they're great for storing stuff off of, but they but they shouldn't be edited off of. If you're buying a, a cheap storage drive from, like a desktop drive, for instance, from Best Buy, and you're putting your footage on it, and you're editing off that drive, um, you're killing your computer's performance. Your computer can only be as fast as its weakest link, and that will be your weakest link. And uh, it, it, your you know files can only be read and written on so fast on those drives. And what ends up happening is they bottleneck your computer. So you can have the fastest computer in the world, but if your hard drive is really slow, um, then it, it's it's killing your performance and slowing down and bogging down your computer. So Use an SSD drive or a RAID drive set to like RAID 1 or RAID 0. I, I use RAID 0. Something like that. It'll give you a lot more speed and reliability, you know, and, and run it, you know, thunder some sort of a Thunderbolt configuration or USB-C configuration and, uh, and edit on a fast drive. Use those storage drives to store stuff off of like I do, but don't edit off of them. They'll kill your computer's performance. Number 29, overexpose when using higher ISOs. Um, a lot of a lot of times you'll see guys, they'll um, be shooting in a dark venue, like a like a music hall, dance hall type thing, or maybe it's some sort of outdoor scene, um, like they're filming um, someone, there's, they're getting ready to work out in the morning and it's darker out, and they'll, they'll be afraid a lot of times of bumping up their ISO, because everyone heard, has heard the adage, the higher ISO, the more grain or more noise in your image, but... What ends up happening is a lot of people will underexpose their shots because they're so afraid to add ISO and they're convinced, man, if I add ISO, I'm just adding grain. And so I would rather add less ISO and, and shoot underexposed so you know it may look a little darker, but I'm safer because I'm not adding ISO. Well, that's actually um, the wrong point of view. Um, you, you should, you're better off exposing either properly or overexposing um, when using higher ISOs. And, and that's totally true. Like I've shot in Alaska at um, ISO 16,000, not 1,600, but 16,000 on my A7S II back in the day. And because I, I had a shot I really wanted, it was a, a moonlit shot of this uh, commercial yacht. And it, I mean, the shot looks amazing. Um, it was something I knew I wanted to capture, but it's dark out. Um, so I cranked my ISO up to 16,000 because 16,000 was um, a slightly overexposed. And if I would have gone with a less ISO, um, something like 12,800 or something even lower than that, 
um, yeah, I might be using a lower ISO, but I'm actually underexposing. I'm not giving the image or the camera enough light to work with. And so in post, it would have been really noisy. But because I bumped it all the way up to 16,000 and overexposed my shot, then in post, I had enough light that not only was was there an, did the camera have enough light to work with, but there was so much light that I could actually bring it down and darken it slightly in post and it kind of uh, squashed some of that noise out. So you're actually better off adding ISO and shooting with a brighter shot than you are not using ISO and shooting it underexposed. So overexposing your shot when using higher ISOs will actually give you cleaner results even if it means adding more ISO. Um, then if you shoot with a lower ISO, but you don't expose well, give your camera light. They're great in low light today. They're great with higher ISOs. If you have a darker shot, you're shooting in a music venue. You have a darker shot you want to get. Um, don't be scared of the ISO. Don't underexpose. Crank it up. Get it bright. Bring it down in post. You'll be glad you did. Number 30, um, and the final one for today, is use one type of quick release plate for everything. Oh, God, I remember back when I did TV, <laughs> outdoor TV. Oh, man, we had different tripod plates for everything or different quick release plates for everything we did. Tripods had one plate. Uh, the shoulder rig had another plate. Slider had another plate. Jib had another plate. Gimbal had another plate. Everything had a different plate. And you know what happened? I never used any of those things because I didn't have time to change plates, nor did I have the patience. Who has the patience to change plates constantly? So when I went off on my own, I, I bought Arca Swiss plates for everything I own. And you don't have to do Arca Swiss. You could do the same thing with like Manfrotto plates or, or, and there are some other options out there. But I like Arca Swiss. It's a great standard. And there are lots of options with Arca Swiss, lots of Arca Swiss plates, lots of Arca Swiss receivers. There are a lot of options out there. But I have Arca Swiss for everything. My tripods, I put Arca Swiss receivers on them. Same thing with my gimbals, same thing with my sliders, same thing with my, um, with my jib, everything. So whether I'm using a Gorillapod or any of my four tripods or um, my either of my gimbals or my, um, my jib, my remote-controlled slider, it doesn't matter. All of my things that I own, all of them are set up with Arca Swiss. And all I had to do to do it was get Arca Swiss plates for all of my camera equipment and or all my cameras and then Arca Swiss receivers for all of my gear. And there's different size receivers out there. So I got, and you don't have to go with Arca Swiss brand. You can go get the Arca Swiss mount and other brands. And you can, you can find all different sizes of them. And so you can get smaller ones for your gimbals and your monopods and bigger ones for your tripods and everything in between. But the idea is that all of your equipment, all of my equipment, for instance, all of it is Arca Swiss mounted. So I can literally, if I want to go from my tripod to my gimbal, I just pop it off my tripod and pop it on my gimbal. And if I want to go from gimbal to the slider, same thing. It's so fast. And so I can switch from one thing to the next just by popping on off my camera off of one and popping it back on another. It's so, so fast. So standardize your quick release plates for all your gear. You don't have to use Arca Swiss. I recommend Arca Swiss, but you can use Manfrotto plates. There are, there are other like receivers out there that you can buy for, for Manfrotto plates, for instance, if you want to do it with Manfrotto. There are other options too. I just personally like Arca Swiss, but the point is use one type of quick release place for, plate for everything, and it will standardize your mounting system and allow you to be able to 
quickly switch between one thing and the next, and it will just make your life a whole lot easier. All right, guys, those were my 30 more rapid fire tips for video production. I know it was a longer podcast, but I I covered 30 different tips, 30, that's a lot. (laughs) And I wanted to break them down so you could um, fully understand my explanation behind each tip. I hope you learned something from this. If you did, let me know. And if you did not, also let me know. Again, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group, type in Filming with Josh on Facebook and ask to join the group today. I'll be sure to approve your request when I see it. Um, You can also send me an email at josh at rusticriver.media. And for those of you who have not been to my website, uh, my website is rusticriver.media. If you go to my website, There is a tab at the top called Filming with Josh. If you put your mouse on that tab, there's a drop-down menu that gives you access to all of my podcasts, my blogs, and my video vlogs. You can read articles, you can listen to podcasts, you can watch video tips. It's all there on my website under the Filming with Josh portion of my website. Um, I hope to see you guys on the next podcast, and I look forward to hearing uh, comments and questions about this one. See you guys next week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.